Hello and welcome to This is a Token with Alex Munro, the podcast that celebrates all things jewellery. I've spent half a lifetime designing and making jewellery, but what really interests me is what it means to other people. This is a podcast where we ask our guests about the jewellery they cherish most of all. We'll explore the moving, fascinating and often surprising stories connected to each piece and those emotional bonds that we just can't do without. My guest today is the fashion stylist Bay Garnet. Bay was behind the incredibly influential 1990s anti-prescriptive fashion magazine Cheap Date and then fan pages. But I know her best for incredibly imaginative and creative fashion styling over the years. She's also done some books. She's worked as contributing editor to British Vogue and fashion director at large for the Evening Standard. Perhaps one of the things that Bay is best associated with is her honorary title of Queen of Thrift. It's not just through her styling and writing, but she's done some brilliant projects with the likes of Oxfam, bringing thrift to the upmarket West End shops and to London Fashion Week. And to cap it all, Bay has a brilliant podcast called This Old Thing, which is all about clothes and thrifting and generally having fun with fashion. Do listen, it's great. So you've got to check out her work. We'll put all the links on the website, as usual, and photos of some really exciting pieces of jewellery that Bay's got to show us today. I'm wondering if they're all going to be thrift shop finds or not, but we'll find out about that now. We're joined again today by technical advisor and generally keep me in checker, Connie. She'll be in the background chipping in and making sure we keep on track. So, Bay Garnet, hooray, and welcome to This Is A Token. sweet what a lovely introduction it's funny because you said queen of thrift and my son who's 15 when he's being really cocky he goes queen of thrift it's become this huge insult in my head <laughs> we were talking earlier about when I first moved to London and if you were a cool kid you just wouldn't buy new clothes there was a place called Lawrence Corner at the top of Tottenham Court Road do you remember and it sold a lot of army wear and stuff. I told you, you look half your age, because if you remember Lawrence Corner, then you can't actually be 29. <laughs> we used to go Camden Market, Portobello, all that sort of thing. And it was essentially like a kind of badge or a sign that you had a bit of style about you and a bit of, a bit of individuality if you were able to go out and kind of put together all your bits of clothing and stuff. But we didn't call it thrift. I mean, it was thrifty because it was cheaper, but it was more about expressing yourself and being individual and things. What I get from your work is risky, imaginative, kind of putting yourself out there but in a much more independent way than perhaps just sort of buying a look off the peg and sticking it on someone. Sometimes, you know, associated with you is anti-fashion, but it's not anti-fashion, is it? It's more anti-prescripted fashion. You know, when we worked on Cheap Date magazine, which was about thrifting, and it was about celebrating people who were independent and stylish. Deborah Harry was on a cover, only to Palenberg, Chloe Sevigny. Anti-fashion, actually, it sort of was at that time. And the fake ads that I did, um, where everything was from charity shops, but, you know, Christian Dior became charity donor and Burberry became borrowed. So it kind of was anti-fashion in that at that time, I genuinely felt that marketing and advertising, all of these clothes being sold so expensively, I genuinely didn't understand it. And when Alex Shulman said, would you come in for a meeting? I was genuinely 
genuinely gobsmacked. Someone had shown her a copy of Cheap Date. Yes, I just didn't really understand why you would want to go and buy something that everyone else could buy. And it's what you said earlier, where for you, thrifting, it was actually just a, a cool thing to do. It was more fun. Yeah. Certainly for me, it was more about being cool. Alexandra Shulman, what was her title? Executive right. editor of... Editor of Vogue. She was always a sweetheart, I think, or is a sweetheart. So yeah, that's who Alex Shulman is, just to let our, our listener know. For me, it was always, it was more about style. And actually, I've now got my three girls. I have three daughters. My oldest is at Goldsmiths doing fine art. And you would not get an art student wearing new clothes, I don't think. No, I did buy her a new jumper once and she wore it one time and everybody took the piss out of her. So she never wore it again. She loved charity shops in secondhand. Is she just... And yeah. she like tailors a lot of her own clothes now. A lot of the, the people she hangs around, they all make their own clothes. So she's she started to do that. So it's brilliant. Also, they're kind of adding panels and then em- embroidering on them and things. So there's a bit of sort of craft and art mixed with thrifting. And there's quite a big section of society that are doing that, which is just so lovely to see. I just, I just wonder why it doesn't seem quite as mainstream as it was. Maybe it's the pressures of commercialism, you know, maybe they're just winning the battle. And then I think advertising and the allure of luxury became brilliantly effective. Yeah. And then you had the high street, which completely opened up. And that did the luxury thing very well. And, and so in a way, you could say that it was actually the kind of the power of that for that 20 years was incredibly potent. You know, and I think now what you say about your daughter, you know, and I say the young people, they don't want that. It's not as alluring as it was for, let's say, our generation. I remember when companies like Next came out, I, I felt they were really useful for people that didn't have the time. And a lot of people didn't have the eye to go out and put together these looks. Once high street shops opened, the general population looked better because it was much easier to buy, you know, nice fashionable clothes, wasn't it? Just seems to have gone a bit too far, really. It really upsets me when, you know, a company brings out a new top that sort of photographed on a famous pop star and it costs £4 and they sell hundreds of thousands of them. And you just think there's such an awful price to pay for that sort of immediacy. I think that's really true. And actually, I interviewed Livia Firth, who was for The Ecologist. And she said something really true. A couple of things, actually, that really resonated with me. And one is, is people were led to believe by the marketing people, by advertisers, that it was absolutely our right, you know, to buy what we wanted the four pound top. That's not true. That was never our right to buy as much as we buy. Where did that come from? This idea of like, we have the right to buy all this stuff and to buy things so cheaply. No. It's simply not true. It comes at a cost, a high cost. But we were always told that we could. You know, it's this kind of thing that I think retrospectively or soon will come out, you know, this idea of how much we all did consume. I don't think we'll be allowed to consume as much as we do.
No, it is great. And it's lovely to see that there are sort of movements towards forcing people to make things repairable, isn't it? You yeah. know, that's one of the things that drives me mad. I mean, I, I'm a bit conflicted in the sense that, you know, we design and make jewellery and it's new jewellery. But so I'm not anti new things per se. But if someone buys a necklace that I make, even though it didn't cost thousands of pounds, I want them to keep it all their life and then hand it down to their kids. So it's a keeper. It's not a kind of a, a temporary thing. And so right from the start, we've always offered, it's really important that you should be able to repair things, replate and polish things up so that they're as good as new. And good clothing companies do that, don't they? You know, you can get your jeans fixed in some places. And I don't buy that many new clothes. You'll be very pleased. I thought I'd pass the test. I thought I'd pass the bay test because I still have, well, up until recently, I think one of the kids nicked it, but I still have a shirt that I bought second hand when I was 13. So wow, what shirt is that? that's uh, that's 70s. Yeah, the blue, blue the blue CCF shirt. Yeah, Libby has that now. And that was that was second hand, and now my kids are wearing it. And Ooh, there's a t-shirt as well that you know the t-shirt with the number on, the sort of yellow and grey one. Yeah, I have that one. That my sister bought second hand in the 70s as well. So that's so cool that you still got that. If it rocks, keep it, I guess. And what you said earlier about that thing of new stuff, God, I buy new stuff. And that's the thing. I never want to sound, and I know I can, but I never want to sound sort of like super dogmatic about it because that would just be completely hypocritical. I suppose what I mean is that... We were never told, it was unquestionable that that was absolutely our right to buy everything that we wanted, well, if we had the money to do it. And I'm talking more about clothes being that cheap, that, that it was okay. It was yeah. not okay to buy a four pound top. It's not okay. It's not okay for the people that make it and it's not okay for the environment. That's all I'm saying. I just, sorry, I just don't want to sound like, you can't buy new stuff. Yeah, no, totally. No, preaching, like that's the thing, is it? Preaching goes nowhere. I'm a hypocrite if I do that. <laughs> well, you know, I am a fully paid up member of the hypocrite society because, you know, life goes on, right? I think what you're saying is, hey, this is fun. This is really fun. You know, finding things in thrift shops. Putting together your own look is just really good fun. It's so much more fun than, than just buying everything off the hanger, you know. Have a bit of fun. And also the, it's the fun of expressing yourself and not feeling the need to perhaps fit exactly into a prescriptive fashion sense. Just kind of find your own call and do it yourself. Just the enjoyment of that, which I think is so lovely. I think sort of back in the maybe late 80s, 90s, there was a often a slight sense of of sort of fashion shaming so i remember some new fashion shops kind of on the king's road or sloan street you couldn't really go into unless you were dressed right and yes you know that kind of thing voyage yeah man oh my god what was that all about do you remember you couldn't get had to ring a doorbell well let in or not yeah you're right i never got in that so but it saved me a few quid but it really worked People were desperate to go. It was that nightclub philosophy, you know, that kind of thing of like, you, if you're good looking enough to come in, then you've made it or something. Yeah. That kind of weird, twisted, like low self-esteem kind of mentality. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, I think I spent the kind of late 80s and 90s feeling just really insecure because I didn't get into the right nightclubs and I couldn't buy the right clothes for the right shops. Or a friend would buy something from Joseph and, and then we'd say, can we borrow your carrier bag? And then we'd like, and really? you could use that carrier bag as an Entry, entry sort of passport into the post shop because they thought you'd been shopping in Joseph. I do kind of remember that vibe. I do remember it. I think it was what, you know, when fashion, yeah, and you're right, Joseph was the real precursor yeah. to the kind of luxury brands, wasn't it? That yeah. big Joseph, definitely. Yeah. Now, I think you're much cooler than me. So I, I'm convinced that everyone else was at the party. And I remember the end of a London Fashion Week, someone was sort of running around to all the exhibitors saying, are you going to the body map party? And... Um, 
Well and they stopped at me and sort of looked and then ran on to the next person and said, are you going to the body map party? And I was like, oh, come on, <laughs> yeah. just ask, mate. Yeah, exactly. God, now that is about as trendy as you can get, the body map party in the late 80s, my God. So where would you like to start, babe? You've got a lot of lovely rings there, but there's a bracelet that I really like the look of that's got this kind of blue enamel and pearls on. And it just looks like it's going to wear really nicely. If it's okay with you, babe, we'll put photos of this on our website with all the information. Cool. But the the bracelet looks kind of flexible, almost like a sort of belty type of band. Uh, what you might call the buckle is is really ornate, almost a bit sort of Russian sort of blue with with gold inlay, and then these beautiful sets of pearls that make it look a bit like those sort of buildings in the centre of Moscow or something. I don't know if it is Russian or is it Arabian or something. No, it was my grandmother's. Ah. No, and when I was growing up in my house in Somerset, my parents didn't have much silverware or anything, but they had a strong room. I remember with a really thick door, and I would always go and look at the jewelry that was there. I mean, there really wasn't that much. It was stuff that my mum had collected over the last whatever 30 years, and then silver candlesticks and and stuff that was just put in there, just you know, just for safekeeping. Mm. And I loved that bracelet and I always used to look at it because it is like a belt. So it's kind of really relaxed somehow. It's pretty glamorous too. I always really loved it. My mother wore it for years. It's quite arresting on a wrist because it's that kind of simple thing where it's like a gold band kind of thing. And then you get that. It always reminded me a bit of a kingfishery type of thing because it's yeah. got that kind of brightness with this gold and it's original. And I always thought it, it just looked really good when people wore it. And I, well, I say people, my grandmother and then my mother. I always really loved it. But then I forgot about it and my mother kind of didn't wear it. And then one day she just said, you want it and I said yes please talking to you makes me realize I really really want to wear it more because I don't wear it enough actually I don't really wear like jewelry to dress I don't like cocktail rings I love maybe putting on some chandeliers if I'm mm. going out for dinner or something mm. but generally I don't swap jewelry up very much mm. and so if I wear that bracelet then I'm kind of making a commitment to wear it for a while there was a brilliant quote on your podcast. I think you say something like, you realise if you're not accessorising very much, you sort of feel like you've lost your personality and you, you can kind of accessorise yourself back to who you are. Well, I was interviewing Charlotte Tilbury, who's got so much bloody personality that <laughs> I'm feeling a bit shrunk at that moment. I love that quote, though. And it reminded me of coming to London and going down the King's Road and seeing the cool people. And it was so much was about the accessorising, you know, kind of particularly with the punk movement and the post-punk movement. It was so brilliant. So when I went to university, I really wanted to make fashion jewellery. And by that, I just meant... Where were you at university? Where did you go? It was called the CAS. So it was part of City of London Polytechnic. It was a really good course, but I kind of rubbed... Uh, slightly the wrong way with them because I so loved fashion. We can both talk till the cows come home about Debbie Harry and and actually when Madonna first leapt into our consciousness and the way that she accessorized herself with all that Catholic imagery and crosses and, and oh, things. Amazing. I just loved it. And I thought this is something really important to people. And, it, and it's something that I wanted to get involved with. But I think at art school, they thought it was slightly down market because it wasn't sort of gallery type of stuff. So That's cool that you knew so early on that that's exactly what you wanted to do was make jewellery, right? I think I was very lucky. And you obviously came to fashion professionally. You didn't sort of study towards it, did you? I mean, was your mother 
glamorous. Like she sounds like a, gla- a glamorous character to me. Glamorous in her own way. Yeah. I mean, not glamorous, you know, you know, she worked really hard and she's a good writer and she worked, you know, for Diana Freeland, American Vogue, and she grew up in Northern Ireland and then she won this Vogue competition. You know, they didn't have a telephone. So, you know, she's kind of, when I say self-made, I mean, she's great and she's, you know, super original. And when I was little, she was writing the Vogue book of fashion and photography and so I was surrounded by books and imagery, and I think that that had a really big influence on me. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, no, she is glamorous in her way, but she's not really interested in clothes so much. You did art history at uni. I I did art history and modern history. I didn't really know about having a career in fashion. I mean, I always, you know, I loved a secondhand thing. And then it was when I edited Cheap Day and I kind of went to New York and Chloe Sevigny, you know, I dated Chloe's brother for years, actually. He asked me on a date by saying, if you go on a date with me, I'll take you to all of Chloe's favourite thrift stores. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, it's a date, mate. Done deal. I'd go on a date with him. Hey, whatever you want. I'm yours. (laughs) Anyway, I don't know what she thought about that. And so I went to all the Connecticut ones and I really, really loved it. Yeah, so I just got really into it. I still do love art history. And I actually always thought that I would probably go into doing something around Mm. art. I worked at the Guggenheim Museum in Venice and stuff. So I think you can see that in your work. So the way that you put clothes together, I think particularly it's the, was it Kate Moss in the sort of banana top? That- well, that was yeah, exactly. I mean, that was the shoot that kind of changed stuff, I guess. And it's it's still quite a kind of seminal shoot. So Alex Shawman said, you know, will you be an editor? She went, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'd like to do a shoot, but can I use charity shop clothes? So Anita Pallenberg was with Keith Richards for years and Brian Jones, and she's this kind of Italian actress, movie star, who was always credited as being like the sixth member of the Rolling Stone. Very stylish really beautiful and we used to go thrifting a lot together and I said can I do a shoot using me and Anita's charity shop finds and Alex said yes and so and Kate Moss wore it and Jürgen Teller shot it and that was the first time that Vogue had ever done a charity shop shoot Phoebe Philo at Chloe went on to copy that top yes but I suppose all those clothes are from charity shops and it was really exciting. I'd never done a fashion shoot before. So, you know, Alex called me up and was cross with me because she was like, you haven't called in any clothes. And I said, and I, I didn't know how to call in clothes because I'd never tested <laughs> or anything. So looking back, it was quite nuts. But that shoot was the first time that Vogue had ever done a charity shop. It wasn't vintage. It was real charity shop clothes. <laughs> For me, it didn't feel radical at all. This is 2003, because that's all I knew. I wasn't interested in fashion. I was more interested in, it's almost because you'd come in from a different perspective. And if if you've done art history, I presume that your eye is used to looking at images and thinking what those images mean to you and sort of thinking independently. So I felt with that shoot, you were being creative and it was almost like, you know, your painting or your original artwork. And then I felt like the industry sort of followed along and thought, oh yeah, that's cool. We'll sort of put this into production and, and monetize it and everything. But it just felt quite dangerous, quite risky and quite brave. I don't know if you felt brave at the time. As I say, it was all I knew. Was, that's yeah. what I love, my charity shop clothes. So 
for me, what else would I do? I'd never looked at a fashion run. I didn't know how to call in clothes. So that's what I mean. It wasn't like, okay, we could do a fashion shoot or we could do a thrift store shoot. I genuinely had never called in clothes. I knew I had a great collection. It was my passion. I loved it. So saying to Alex, well, could I do a charity shop shoot with just charity shop clothes? And her saying, God, it's so funny that you asked that because I'm doing an issue about David Bowie and music. And Anita Pallenberg was associated with music because she was with Keith Richards for years. Mm. She's incredibly stylish. Google her after Anita Pallenberg. Mm. To me, it was just normal. It, it didn't even feel that weird that Vogue was doing a charity shop clothes. That's just the truth. Because again, I was doing Cheap Date, which was completely about secondhand. So that was my world. Yeah. But now people say to me, oh my God, he did the first like vintage shoot in Vogue that was all vintage. And that's, I know that's cool. And I'm like, oh, that's so nice. But I didn't feel like I was presenting a kind of alternative idea at the time. Yeah. It's probably one of those lovely things where you can get a bit confused between sort of naivety and bravery, where a young person will come in and do something completely sort of kooky. And it's just because they don't know any better. I often think that's the great power of youth and naivety is that you can kind of break these walls without really knowing it i think that's so true and then things become sort of more tightened or kind of complicated yeah as you grow in experience you sort of know the rules and know what's been and what's coming and perhaps yeah just it becomes different doesn't it yeah definitely and i actually think god I, i would love to be a young man in today's world i mean there's a lot of things wrong with today's world but i always loved quite effeminate clothing but I always sort of dressed because I was worried about what other people would think of me and I think now I think there's a great scene where a young man can wear what on earth they want I don't know what do you think about that con I mean you know well more so it depends there are lots more male fashion icons who I guess are breaking the barrier of like what's because Harry Styles is one of them isn't yes, he exactly yeah 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 he's pretty cool I don't I don't really know much about him but I remember seeing that fashion shoot come out and I was like nice clothes he was some nice clothes hmm. we like Harry Styles dressed in women's clothes basically yeah, brilliant kind of great I mean yeah things are getting a lot better someone I love who I work with called Connor I work with him a lot and he often has painted nails and you know wears makeup it's just totally normal to him that's what he does you know yeah it's great it's great but look going back to the bracelet I've talked to a lot of people that have got a lot of these great pieces but they're a bit nervous about wearing them so they become sort of heirloom pieces and they're kind of like oh I'm not gonna wear that because I might lose it because I suppose that bracelet now is a really important connection to, you know, your mum and your grandmother. And are you sort of precious about it? Is it chucked into a box with a jumble of other stuff? I'm not precious about jewellery. I don't really have much precious jewellery. Yeah, it's in my drawer. Yeah. And I haven't worn it because, 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 you know, I'm walking my dogs or I'm working. You know, I just haven't been out for two years. (laughs) I kind of like it because I think it could either have been worn by the Tsarina of Russia or Cleopatra could have worn it. Yeah, I like both of those. I just think it's got a real glamour to it. Anyway, we'll we'll put a photo of that. I love that piece. I do. You really want to touch it. Like, I really want to feel it. That's the disadvantage with doing this on Zoom is that we can't squidge it and and try it on and have a look at it. But um, you've got the measure of it, you too. Absolutely. It's great colour. The gold's a great colour too. I mean, everything's lovely about that. So we've got some brilliant, brilliant rings, but I'm going to just work sort of sequentially through the photos. And um, there's a lovely ring with with a big pearl in the middle or mother of pearl or something. I can't quite see from the photo. And then three little diamonds on either side. Yeah, that's a moonstone. And my God, my grandmother did wear that for forever. And then I was given that ring by my mum when I was 14 
15. And I didn't take it off for 25 years. And so I just loved it. And my dad loved me wearing it. Not because he was very close to his mother. He just he just loved that ring. So I really love that ring. And then I got a bit sick of it. I love it. But I literally wore it on this finger for 25 years. Yeah, it's probably the thing that I might keep out of everything because I wore it for so long and because my dad's not alive anymore and it was important to him for some, not important, but he appreciated it and he really liked it. And so out of everything, that might be the ring that I'd actually keep perhaps for those reasons, purely sentimental. And I do love the ring. I love the moonstone with the diamonds and I do love it. And actually, again, talking to you, I'm going to try and find a place to wear it because I do love it. It's a beautiful ring. It's a really nice stone in it. Isn't it? What kind of a teenager were you? I mean, I can see you wearing that. Were you very girly or or were you kind of geeky and swatty learning all your history of art stuff? No, I wasn't. No, I was pretty, pretty average in in most ways. Um, What kind of teenager? It's really hard to answer that. I don't really know what kind of teen. I just feel like I was me. I did bunk off school a lot. I was probably quite naughty. Then the school called up my mum and said, do you know that Bay's missed nine Fridays this term? There were only 10 of them. (laughs) I I remember mum, I think it was on a Friday that she said this. So, you know, I I did miss school and um, I look back and my kids, they do work hard. And I did sort of swing it you know I did go I did go to university and all that but I look back and I think gosh my teachers were not good on the whole and I look back and I think god I wish I could have just been grown up enough to appreciate the power of learning and how great that is but also certainly for me like sure education was part of it and actually the reason that I was interested in education was it was going to be a route out of outside Ipswich in Suffolk my route to come to London was going to be to go to university and and you needed I think five O levels or something to get into a university I can't uh, well I I went through the art school route so when I sort of became self-aware and I think when I first took an interest in fashion I knew I had to get the hell out of Suffolk there was no other motivator other than leaving home and moving to London and so that's why I got the bare minimum um, just to get the hell out of there but now on young people there seems to be such massive pressures because they're thinking about exams in terms of whether they'll be able to get a job and whether they'll be able to pay the rent and all this kind of stuff later on. And you think, man, you shouldn't be thinking about that, you know. Your questions are very good ones, you know, exactly that, of just escaping. Yeah. And, and now I know it's really, God, it's, it's so difficult. Yeah, I mean, my son's 15 and my daughter is uh, 12. So they're both kind of, you know, at school. But my son, you know, he when he actually learns something, he's curious about it as something interesting as opposed to being uninspired and just seeing it as schoolwork that is about good teachers when I hear him talk about stuff I'm amazed because I think my god you treat this as something really interesting as opposed to which I did which was more like gotta learn that and you know you know like Anthony and Cleopatra or you know I did enjoy a lot of it but there was a lot like the more science subjects and all of that that I think I wish I'd been able to see it as the interesting thing that it is yeah well my wife Denise has just gone back to university she never went to university because she became a model and she's gone to UEA to do creative writing and she's having the time of her life so I bet she gets a lot of homework she works like way harder than anyone else because I suppose it takes a while if you've been out of the education system you know I like education I always think it's great it should be an ongoing thing and it's you know so she's just really enjoying it and it's it's the right time for her she appreciates so much more because it's less of like the moving out and meeting people and like leaving home for the first time like she's in it for the education so that 
that's and also what you say which is what you've actually said it better much better than I did I said in a very long-winded way is that when you get older you realize that gaining knowledge and learning stuff is really amazing and it's, mm. it's a wonderful thing when did you kind of get like a kind of style you know become self-aware insofar as how you expressed yourself through your clothes and your I mean, look. really early on because people still say to me after 30 years oh my god I don't believe it you're still wearing denim shirts like you're still wearing the same clothes and I don't realize that about myself but I guess maybe other people do but you know I when I lived in New York and I went to all these thrift stores I went through a real period of dressing up and doing like the Russian thing so I'd wear like Yves Saint Laurent Cossack coat from the 70s with kind of moccasin suits and goes the idea of the Russian Cossack and I would be much more playful and much more kind of I suppose in a way it was almost I don't want to say an art form that sounds pompous but it was really using clothes to create characters yeah from thrift stores and just really going for it yeah and I look at those pictures and I'm like oh my god I put so much thought and love into my looks (laughs) I'm like now I could just about put on a warm sweater you know what you said about being younger, you know, and all of the, you know, clothes looked better on me then. I used to put something on, everything would fit me. And I was at the Oxfam warehouse two days ago, and it was the exact opposite, where everything used to fit me, and now nothing quite does. Ah, so depressing. <laughs> oh, wow, we've all been there. Is, is the feeling which I haven't really had for a while where I think probably when Wham first started appearing on telly and then and we had you know old jeans from Camden Market that we'd roll up and have sort of boxers shoes underneath them and then a sort of college jacket a US college jacket and some Ray-Ban aviators and and all your hair up with a little bit bleached on the front I just felt like so brilliantly cool and the rest of the world was it was well yeah yeah you should see some of the photos photos i'd love to see some of the photos i think we should go up on the website (laughs) all right well we'll we'll think about that but you know i used to make me feel great and i sort of missed that slightly now because the only time i dress up is probably for something like a black tie thing where i'll really dress up and basically i feel like a bit of an idiot because i don't really like uniforms Um, so i rarely dress up now and feel like i'm the bee's knees but maybe that just you know maybe we need to go to more thrift shops i love that ring yeah which one? It's like a sweet. It's it looks like an awesome white thing. gold, and it's yeah, it looks like a squishy sweet, and it's just covered in what diamonds. Are they a fruit? Oh my god, I've got yeah. I mean that. Look there. Ah, oh. that is the most gorgeous piece. You've oh sent god. us some amazing photos. So my kind of acid test for a piece of jewelry is whether it whether you kind of want to eat it. And I don't literally want to eat it, but do you know what I mean? If something looks good yeah. enough to eat, I just love it. Totally. That. And that is this ring. Basically, it's like a almost like a kind of men's signet ring. And it's white gold. And then it looks like the middle bit, like where the kind of crest pattern would be, has been pushed down mm. with a thumb. So it's mm. got a dent, a concave kind of dent. And then it's covered in pave diamond. It's by Solange as a guri. Ah, Solange. Great. And it's called the Muzz Ring. And her husband is called Murray. And so she calls him Muzz. And she was 
basically she did it with plasticine and she pushed it down and she put her thumb in it and that's how it came to be this shape now about 15 years ago 20 years ago a friend of mine Laura Bailey do you know who I mean Mm -hmm. Laura Laura had this ring and whenever I saw Laura I'd be like I just love your ring I just love that ring and I used to look at it and think it was that thing of like oh but I'll never own it (laughs) Oh, impoverished, you know, a bit like that, a little bit like that, you know. But I felt it, I felt a bit saddened because I would see this ring and this big chunky diamond. I mean, the diamonds aren't chunky, but it just looked so kind of expensive and cool. I just loved it. Anyway, I um, loved this ring. And when I got engaged, I tried the ring on with my husband. Well, we never actually got married, but we're still engaged. (laughs) We never talk about it anyway. That's that's a whole other podcast. He's your fiancé. After 15 years, I don't know how long they've gone so for, but yeah. Anyway, we went and we tr- I tried it on and it was really expensive. And we didn't have, not that we've got many millions now by any means, mm. but we, we just felt kind of like extravagant. Anyway, I always loved this ring. I never forgot about this ring. And then about eight years ago, Solange was doing this film with um, a friend of mine called Liberty Ross. And um, she said, look, would you do the clothes? And I said... Yeah. And she said, would you be paid in jewelry instead of? Yes. And I said, yeah. Result. <laughs> and so the ring came to me and I've never, I never take it off. Wow. Wow. People should look up Solange's work. There's a, there's a new TV program about. I haven't seen it. it it's like a sort of bake-off for jewelry called All the Glitters. And Solange is one of the judges on that. But uh, I always think you should see her work because she's a great designer and amazing great. work. Solange. I love that ring. And and um, I think I've seen something else of yours. There was her she's lovely so kind of nice. star-shaped one with diamonds in the end that was Solange's as well. And I can't that. remember what that was from. Anyway, this that ring's gorgeous. We'll, we'll have all the photos up on the website. It's called the Snowy Muzz. So her husband's called Muzz. And then it's like snow. Do you know what I mean? It's called, and when I see Murray, her husband, I go, (laughs) You're making me feel a little bit guilty. And it wasn't a bad thing. I had very good motivations because I don't have a piece of jewellery called the Den Ring because my wife's called Denise. And so I'm guilty there. But Liberty Fabrics asked me to design some fabric. And so I designed some fabric for them and it was for sale in Liberty for a while. And I thought I would make everybody happy and call it Mrs. Monroe. And I could tell my mum that it was named after her and tell Denise it was named after her, but they both cottoned on that I'd sort of hadn't really named it after either of them. So I think I kind of... Love is a fountain. Love is... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I should have said that at the time when I was getting in trouble for it. (laughs) (laughs) I love the muzz ring. The next ring that you said to pitch off was this. I would is, that, that. is that your choice? I, I would like all that one. It just looks like it's, it's from the British Museum. It looks like 24 karat gold with an yeah. Egyptian carnelian signet in it. So it's like a signet ring, but the, the signet is a, is a... It is um, Arabic, actually. I think it maybe says, inshallah, in God willing, or, or something like yeah. that. I asked a friend of mine who's from Lebanon, but yeah, they weren't sure because it's quite... See, this is quite a romantic story in that I met Tom, Tom Craig, is his name he's a photographer very good photographer when I met him he was working for Metal Saint Frontier so he was going to kind of these places around the world the front line and going to these quite dangerous places and he was so he still is he was so handsome he looked like Harrison Ford hang on a minute yes (laughs) because I I started off liking him but 
But now he's he's out with Medicine Sans Frontier and he's brave and does good work and he's handsome. <laughs> I'm slightly starting to think, who is this? Who is this guy? And I'm not sure how much. <laughs> so funny yeah no he did no he really did look like harrison ford wow yeah he really really did i have to show you a photograph of him but he did look like harrison ford and we fell madly in love with each other and you know as these things happen i got pregnant really soon after we met and he was going off to and he wrote a book called writing from the edge and this amazing book of all the you know, he would go away with, let's say, Martin Amos to the favelas in Colombia. He went away with Daniel Day-Lewis to Palestine, to Gaza. And he went he went with all these different writers to these quite extreme places. And he did the and he went to the asylums of Armenia, very dark, like kind of. But he, he did anyway. He was in the middle of this project when I met him. So he was going off to these places and um, he's, you know, and I would worry about him and I was pregnant and. To cut a long story short, before he left, this was a different trip. Like he, he did a lot with A.A. Gill. Do you know mm. A. A. Gill yeah. and Adrian? He died so sadly. It's amazing guy. So brilliant. Mm. And he was going off with Adrian to Jordan, I think. And before he left, he said, I said, I really, really want a ring. Will you get me a ring, please? I really gave instructions. Mm. And he came back. And I was so happy. Every time he went away, I was so happy he was home because it always felt mm. some places were quite dangerous. And so I like the immigration story he did. There, there were stories afterwards I'd hear that were like there was it was dangerous. And then, you know, child sex trafficking in Bosnia, like all mm. sorts of things. He did, did that cover for the um, Sunday Times and the journalist is still in hiding. It's You know, there's a there's mm. a whole other, you know, but I was always really happy when he came back. And when I'd asked for this ring, I had. You know, I didn't think he would actually get it for me. And he came back and he gave it to me in a little box. And it was that ring. And he'd got it from Jordan for me on one of his trips within that time in his life when he was going to the Middle East a lot and a lot of these different places. And I really love it. And actually, Adrian, I used to wear it. And Adrian, when I'd see Adrian, he'd say, you know, I chose that ring for you. And I saw Adrian's partner the other night, Nicola Formby, who's a friend of mine. And I told Nicola the story about the ring. I said, you know, whenever Adrian saw that ring, he would wink at me and say, I chose your ring. Now, I don't think Adrian did choose my ring, but I guess, you know, I was really fond of Adrian and the fact. So this ring means a lot to me because um, because I suppose me and Tom got it for me in the throes of kind of that when you're pregnant for the first time and you're kind of crazy in love and, you know, I was so happy that he returned and he gave me this ring and it was a big deal. And, you know, so I really love this ring. That is good. That's a gorgeous story. Um, I love the fact that all these pieces of jewellery have these lovely, um, um, quite romantic and nostalgic um, connections for you. Um, which is what I love about jewellery. I love it's, it's the connection. It's, you know, the, I, I think the object... I think the other thing is that all these objects, like that last ring, is a beautiful ring. So obviously, not only is Tom, you know, brave and talented and and handsome, but he's also got really good taste as well. Okay, so. okay let's go back. <laughs> a bit, let's we'll just, list. Let's just. We'll list okay. these bad points later. I can give you the reality, right? And I would just come back to my house, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we would take us through to the kitchen and we'll see if there's any washing up that he left I, over. I, I, I'm I'm um, I am romanticizing everything, obviously. But, you know, because why not? One does. But, you know, no, but that we, you know, it was a ring that was um, it's lovely. It did feel really romantic at the time. I'm going to check out um, 
writing from the edge my um my neighbor by Rizzoli, just so you okay know. well we'll put that on the website so that people can can find that one um my neighbor here is uh, a chap called jeremy bowen he's a great friend and he's always off doing this sort of thing and yeah and um I, and basically it, he just makes me a bad person because Every so often he comes back from Palestine. He's a, he's a, uh, a BBC um, Middle East correspondent. And yeah. um, every so often he comes back from Palestine and he's been shot or you know, he, has, he has a band. Last time he had a bandage on his head. He was shot in the head. Oh, yeah. And um, we go to the pub and everyone absolutely loves him. And he tells all his stories about, you know, the day they flew into Kandahar and the shit was really hitting yeah. the fan. And I kind of go, I kind of think, yeah, mate, you know, I make jewellery, and that's pretty interesting too, but nobody wants to hear about it, <laughs> so I always struggle with it. Um, well, you made gorgeous jewellery. You were doing, like, all the stuff that people have copied you a lot. You were doing that kind of 70s thing way before everyone else. Well, it's it's not as exciting as, as going off and, you know, reporting yeah, from the front yeah, line. Well, you should read, get Tom's book, Rising from the Edge. It's kind of amazing. I will. I, I like the sound of that. Um, we One of the first podcasts I did was with um, the the goddaughter kind of, of the real life Indiana Jones, who, because uh, you mentioned oh. that he looks like Harrison Ford, and he was a complete and utter arse bastard. So, so. What does that know. mean, arse bastard? What does that well, mean? Well, I just made that <laughs> word up. Um, so it's a combination of a bastard and an arse, I suppose. Oh, Sorry. Really? So he was a horrible guy in real yeah, life. Yeah, man. It's like unbelievable. So, so she took this, uh, this, this woman. Um, it was her aunt or stepmother. It was her stepfather. I can't remember. Anyway, we'll have to listen to it again. He, he took her off to, to find the Peruvian, because all, all the stories from Indiana Jones are true. Well, you know, they're based on truth. He took her off to find this Peruvian treasure. And when they found it, they loaded up the donkeys and he spun around with the pistol and, and shot her. But she picked up a, a stool and deflected the gun and then and, and grappled him to Why the ground. Why would he do that? Why would he shoot her? I think, I think he might have killed his first wife for the money. Wow. So he was a terrible. A, absolute yeah. philanderer, murderer. Oh. And, I mean, maybe, I don't know. You know but, but a brilliant. He's an arse bastard, a technical term. But a brilliant archaeologist. Nah, a bit of a chancer, I think. <laughs> I just think he was lucky. And, and anyway, yeah. anyway, that was, that's, that's the real life um, Indiana Jones. It was, it was such a great story to hear about. But yeah. um, I, I'm digressing. I told you I was going to go digressing all yeah, the time. I know. I, I like, I, yeah, that's <laughs> a conversation, isn't it? You know, <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Well, look, we, I love those pieces. We're going to put them all up on the, on the website. Nothing from a thrift shop. You know what? I like, um, I do have a ring that I love from a thrift store shop, which is like, which I can show you. I can, I'll send you a photo, Alex, so you can see it. And it's like, I'll send it, I'll talk about it. I was, again, I was with Laura Bailey, actually, in Oxford. We went to a thrift store. It was more of an antiques market, actually. Mm. And I saw this ring and it was basically like, I don't know, five pounds. And it's basically like, looks like a bunch of sweeties all together. And the reason why I don't wear it is because I suppose, and the reason why I don't wear stuff from thrift stores, I've got some great costume jewellery from thrift stores. And when I do the Oxfam shop, the Oxfam fashion shows, I love, you know, that kind of sort of 80s ethnic stuff with the silver hoops and everything. And I, so I do love all of that. Mm. But for me personally, I wear the same jewellery every day on the whole. And so, and I like fine jewellery. You know, mm. I like diamonds, I don't have many of them, but I like diamonds. I like gold. I like 
you know, I, I suppose I like, does that make sense? So no, I, totally. I mean, I'm with you. And you like Solange's work. Shops. You know, I've got to have some luxury in this life now. Mm. And I don't buy jewellery, really. You know, I just have the jewellery that I have and that I love. I've worn, you know, these sort of things for 20 years. And also your daughter or your son's wife or whatever is going to wear them for another lifetime. I mean, they're going to last yeah. forever, aren't they? So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which, is, which is beautiful. And and perhaps when one of them is asked if they'll go on someone's podcast, they'll say, well, it was my great grandmothers and then my mothers and, and then my grandmothers and then my mothers. And now, you know, it's oh. lovely. I, that's what I love about jewellery. You must see it a lot because, you know, you're you're in touch with, I guess, with people who buy your jewellery. I mean, you must, you must know a lot about kind of the stories of your your own jewellery that people have bought, I would imagine. Well, it is. Which is so lovely because, you know, I think if you're creative and you make something, you, you then have to sort of release any sort of ownership of it and it takes on its own life and begins its own story I meant to start out by saying I feel like I owe you such a big debt of gratitude because there are a few people and you're very much included in that bunch that have really given me professionally a bit of a window and and have been part of this story of me being able to make jewellery and sell it and I think um, because you used our jewellery on that Debbie Harry shoot um, you did and and you've used it you had exactly the right jewellery it was well, like a brainer. So, you know, thank you, because I didn't, that was it. It was just job done. Did you give Debbie Harry more recently a, a bee necklace? Because she wore it when she was singing at a festival. And I, I assume uh, that came through you. Badly. I wish it was. No, no, nothing to do with me. Well, you know, I just I just wanted to start out by saying big, big thank you. You know, that's lovely to hear. Thank well, you. Well, look, it's just okay. brilliant to meet you. Thank you, Bay. It's been brilliant. Thank you for your time. Thank it's so nice to meet you. See you soon for a dog walk. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you'd like to see some of the pieces we've been talking about, please check out our website and follow the links to the podcast page. You'll also find information on how to share your own stories, give a bit of feedback, or have a look at all the jewellery-related things I've been up to recently. We've also got some great jewellery-making tutorials on our YouTube channel. There's lots to see. Just go to www.alexmonroe.com.